this valley is a very solitary place. The prophet Jeremiah thus describes it. A wilderness, a land of deserts and of pits, a land of drought and of the shadow of death, a land that no man but a Christian passes through and where no man dwells. Now here Christian was worse up to it than in his sight at Polyon, as by the sequel you shall see. I saw then in my dream that when Christian was got to the borders of the shadow of death, there met him two men, children of them, that brought up an evil report of the good land, making haste to go back to whom Christian spake as follows. Whither are you going? They said, Back, back, and we would have you do so too, if either life or peace is prized by you. Why, what's the matter? said Christian. Matter, said they, we were going that way as you were going, and went as far as we durst. And indeed, we were almost past coming back, for had we gone a little further, we had not been here to bring the news to thee. But what have we met with, said Christian? Why, we were almost in the valley of the shadow of death, but that by good hap we looked before us and saw the danger before we came to it. But what have you seen, said Christian? See, why, the valley itself, which is as dark as pitch, we also saw there the hobgoblins, satyrs, and dragons as a pit. We heard also in that valley a continual howling and yelling, as of a people under unutterable misery, who there sat bound in affliction and irons, and over that valley hang the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death also doth always spread his wings over it. In a word, it is every whit dreadful, being utterly without order. Then said Christian, I perceive not yet by what you have said that this is my way to the desired haven. Be it thy way, we will not choose it for ours. So they parted, and Christian went on his way, but still with the sword drawn in his hand, for fear lest he should be exalted. Okay, so I have a couple of questions about this. And Julia is going to run around on the mic if you want to stand up and answer, if you're comfortable with that. So basically, what is this valley called? knows he has to go through this way, right, to get to his desired haven. Okay, Christian meets two men returning from the valley of the shadow of death. What advice do they give Christian? Turn back. Turn back. I like it where they say, back, back, if life or peace is prized by you. Do you prize your life? Do you prize peace? Don't go this way. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> so my next question is, 
Can you think of a time when you prize in life or peace so as to be tempted to turn back from the way from following Christ or walking this journey to the celestial city? 2020. 2020? <laughs> right now? Right now, yeah. Right now. by unbelievers and How can we be sober and alert to this temptation to prize life and peace more on the way of the cross that Christ has called us to follow? How can we be sober and alert? What practical steps might we take? We have to be equipped with the Ephesians 6 armor, um, the sword of the Spirit,
We can eat it reading through the whole scripture, the whole Bible in one year, and underlining, or two, and underlining who God is and what she learned about him. I saw then in my dream, so far as this valley reached, 
there was on the right hand a very deep ditch, that ditch is it to into which which blind have led the blind in all ages, and have both there miserably perished. Again, behold, on the left hand there was a very dangerous quagmire, into which if even a good man falls, he can find no bottom for his foot to stand on. Into that quag King David once did fall, and had no doubt therein did smother, had not he that is able plucked him out. The pathway was here also exceedingly narrow, and therefore good, therefore, good Christian was the more put to it, for when he saw it in the dark to shun the ditch on the one hand, he was ready to tip over into the mire onto the other. Also, when he sought to escape the mire, with great carefulness, he would be ready to fall into the ditch. Thus he went on, and I heard him sigh bitterly, for besides the dangers mentioned above, the pathway was here too dark. Here was so dark that oft times when he lifted up his foot to set forward, he knew not what or where or upon which he set it next. About the midst of this valley I perceived the mouth of hell to be, and it stood also hard by the wayside. Now, thought Christian, what shall I do? And ever and anon the flame and smoke would come out in such abundance of sparks and hideous noises, things that cared not for Christian's sword, as did Apollyon before, that he was forced to put up his sword and betake himself to another weapon called All Prayer, Ephesians 6.18. So he cried in my hearing, O oh Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul, Psalm 116.4. Thus he went on, on a great while, yet still the flames would be reaching towards him. Also he heard doleful voices and rushings to and fro, so that sometimes he, saw, he thought he should be torn in pieces or trotted down like mire in the streets. This frightful sight was seen, and these dreadful noises were heard by him for several miles together, and coming to a place where he thought, he heard a company of fiends coming forward to meet him. He stopped and began to muse what he had best to do. Sometimes he had half a thought to go back. Then again, he thought he might be halfway through the valley. He remembered also how he had already vanquished many a danger, and that the danger of going back might be much more than to go or to go forward. So he resolved to go on. Yet the fiends seemed to come nearer and nearer. But when they were come even almost at him, and cried out with a most vehement voice, I will walk in the strength of the Lord God. So they gave back and came no farther. One thing I would not let slip, I took notice that now poor Christian was so confounded that he did not know his own voice, and thus I perceived it. Just when he was come over against the mouth of the burning pit, one of the wicked ones got behind him, and stepped up softly to him, and whisperingly suggested many as grievous blasphemy to him, which he verily thought had proceeded from his own mind. This put Christian more to it than anything that he met with before, even to think that he now he should now blaspheme him that he loved so much before. Yet if he could have helped it, he would not have done it, but he had not the discretion either to stop his ears or to know from whence these blasphemies came. Discouraging clouds of confusion. It's a very 
not just dark to see, but it's hard to think through. How can you relate, or actually first, what weapon did Christian resort to use after his sword would not do the trick? Prayer? And that's a helpful picture, right? The word is always sufficient. But we need to be in prayer, too. We have to ask for help. How can you relate to Christian's experience while walking through the valley of the shadow of death in your own life? Did someone be willing to... Did something stick out in this that you thought, I've seen this, or I... I felt this way. Interestingly, that part, isn't it? Lois said the blaspheme at the end. I wanted to touch on that because I thought it was very picturesque of the narrator sees this going on, right? He sees that there are wicked ones that are whispering words into Christian's ear. Christian doesn't know it, though. He thinks, could these things actually be coming from my own mind? He doesn't want to blaspheme the one that he loves, right? There are times where it seems as if we're so confused that we can't even tell our own voice. We do see some vacillating thoughts in Christian, don't we? What are, what are his vacillating thoughts? Back and forth, up and down. He wanted to get out and go back. But then he's like, I'll still go through all that again. And so it's better to just go forward. Right. I'll have to go through all of that again, so I better just keep going. Back and forth, right? What did he resolve to do, though? To walk in the strength of his God. To walk in the strength of his God, yes. How does this passage help you in seeing some of your fearful experiences? helpful to see that there is vacillating, right? And that 
is part of the Christian walk. It's not enjoyable. None of us want to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm turning back. I think that's what we've been seeing in Hebrews, haven't we? In Hebrews, we're, we're starting to turn. And the author kept writing saying, don't turn away. Fix your eyes on Christ. And that's what we see Christian doing here. We're going to see it even more in this um, third section that James going When Christian had traveled in this disconsolate condition some considerable time, he thought he heard the voice of a man as going before him, saying, For I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and the fear no evil, for thou art with me. Then he was glad for that, the, and that for these reasons. First, because he gathered from thence that some who feared God were in this valley as well as himself. Secondly, for that he perceived God was with them, though in that dark and dismal state. And why not, thought he, with me? Though by reason of the impediment that attends this place, I cannot perceive it. Thirdly, for that he hoped, could he overtake them, to have company by and by. So he went on and called to him that was before, but he knew not what to answer. For that he also thought himself to be alone, and by by the day broke, and then Christian, and then said Christian, he hath turned the shadow of death into the morning. Now morning, being come, he looked back, not out of desire to return, but to see by the light of the day what hazards he had gone through in the dark. So he saw more perfectly the dish that was on the one hand, and the quag that was on the other. Also how narrow the way was, which led betwixt them both. Also now he saw the hobgoblins and the singers and the dragons of the pit, but all were far off. For after break of day, they came not nigh. Yet they were discovered to him according to that which is written. He discovereth deep things out of darkness and bringeth out to light the shadow of death. Now was Christian much affected with his deliverance from all the dangers of his solitary way? Which dangers, though he feared them more before, yet he saw them more clearly now, because the light of the day made them conspicuous to him. And about this time the sun was rising, and this was another mercy to Christian. For you must note that though the first part of the valley of the shadow of death was dangerous, yet the second part, which he was yet to go, was, if possible, far more dangerous. For from the place where he now stood, even to the end of the valley, the way was all along, set so full of snares, traps, gins, and nets here, and so full of pits, pitfalls, deep holes, and shelvings down there, that it had now been dark as it was when he came the first part of the way. Had he had a thousand souls, they had in reason been cast away. But as I said, now as the sun was rising, then, he, then said he, his candle shineth on my head, and by his light I go through darkness. So most of you know the end of the story, that Christian does get to this luscious city, but we're not going to see it today. We'll have to finish reading. <laughs> uh, 
But this third section, how is Christian described as he travels at the beginning? If this other man sees God, why would God not be with the Christian too? That incur- I think that's a way maybe we could encourage one another. Not just God is with you, but when you see God is ministering to other Christians around you, why would he not minister to you too? Okay, and the third reason?
Okay, try it. that there are dark times when you're walking through it sometimes. It's not light, right? And you trust the light will come at his appointed season. One last one? Progress has been helpful to see again and again that much of Christian's life is the struggle, the battle. Um, and I think this part shows it so clearly. Um, and even just reading Psalm, uh, Psalm 23, that 
That was the continuous walk of David. Yes, David had great days, but he also had a lot of dark, challenging days, and that that, that is real Christian life. And I think we've tried to describe that. Not just so we can say, oh, okay, you know, we all have hard days, but that that's actually part of life. And um, you know, I, I try not to say that flippantly, but uh, and not that we want to be disconsolate every moment of the day, because we're also to rejoice, and the Lordship turns our mourning into dancing. So there's, there's those concepts, too, but that, um, that there are dark hard days, and that doesn't mean that we're not this when there are dark days, and even dark seasons. Okay, um, we're going to transition to um, lead Christian and um, talk about or hear from a couple of ladies in our own body that have gone through fearful experiences and have seen and uh, are going to share some of their life of how um, the Lord has them and how they have learned to trust God through some of their experiences. So the first one I would like to welcome up is Kathy Edit, and she's going to share some of her life with us. Germany just outside of France for a couple of hours. 
then inside France for another couple of hours, then stopped further north in France, then again in Germany on the other side of France. The whole time, I'm looking at my watch. I knew I was going to be very late. I thought they might leave someone behind to get me to the youth hostel in Holland. Nope. I ended up at the train station mission. A very sweet lady helped me as the person in charge of the students had told them to hopefully expect me. I had given them all my German money so they could buy me a train ticket to get me to where everyone else was. It was a town still an hour away from the hostel. By this time, it was 11 p.m., and all the buses to where I still needed to go had stopped. Now what? A young man and his sister approached me and asked me if they could help. They got, went home, got their car, and drove me to the hostel. All the time, I'm thinking, God has this. He will get me home. I found out later that the other train, the one of the two that traveled up and down the Rhine, had a wreck, and everyone thought I was on that train. Fear. Oh, what goes through your mind when things go wrong? We heated our house in California with a wood stove, so every summer we would go up into the Sierras to cut firewood. We would camp for the weekend, cut the firewood on Saturday, and go back home on Sunday. One trip, we were on our way home with both vehicles loaded with wood. Dan decided to drive the pickup as he wasn't sure about its brakes. I drove the old postal van. If you remember, you've got to think back. It was a big box thing. Since there was only room for one in the van, the boys rode with Dan. I was in front just in case his brakes went out. He would drive into me and I would stop both vehicles. <laughs> there was a particularly long, steep stretch of road. My brakes went out. I tried to think of what they, what did they do in the movies? Turn the key off, pull the parking brake, throw it in the park. And there were no cell phones at this time. I had a hand signal, Dan, who was behind me. No brakes. This is how I did it. No <laughs> brakes. No brakes. Out the window of this big postal van. No brakes. Over and over, I signaled to him. He had no clue what I was trying to say. <laughs> he finally came up beside me. But we're still going down this really long, straight stretch. And I yelled over, so he rolled down the window, I yelled over, no brakes. He got in front, and he wanted me to hit the truck with the van so he could stop me. I didn't like that idea at all. <laughs> We finally came to a stop. I got out and I was shaking so bad. The next section of the road was curvy and steep. We prayed, gave thanks for the protection, then he drove the van the rest of the way home, stopping a lot to let those brakes cool down. Another time was just a year and a half ago. Glenn, Christy, and family went to the Creation Museum and the Ark, eight hours away. Dan and I stayed here with Sarah 
as she needs to be no further than an hour from a hospital. We had watched her many times in the past. However, this time proved to be very different. I had started Sarah on her lunch feed. When she was done about 45 minutes later, I went to unhook her and found her in a seizure. She was not responding to me. I had always been the one to hold her hand, stroke her hair, and pray during a seizure, not the one in charge. Jan will tell you that she scared the bejeebers out of me and that you would find a pile of them on the living room floor. <laughs> I did fine doing the things I had observed Glenn and Christy do during this time. Hooked Sarah up to a full socks machine, talked to her, had her cheeks and her chest trying to get her to respond. That was fine until I had to call Christy to find out what else I needed to do. That's when I broke down and the tears flowed. I could barely speak to her. I thought for sure we were losing her. I was begging God not to let her die. Please, not on my watch. Christy had called the paramedics and they came. We went to the hospital. She was fine by then. It was so much easier being, not being the one in charge when things go bad. There have been other times too, a rattlesnake in Mexico, bear and moose in Alaska, and I know there will be more times when I will be afraid. I know God is sovereign and that it will be all for his glory. I am hoping that this truth will come to mind first.
I wanted to follow Jesus, but didn't really have much guidance on how to do that. There were few expectations placed on me from my parents or my church. My parents essentially told me I was a big kid, and most of the time I was. I really wanted to know more about God, but wasn't sure how to go about it. I remember a specific time as a teenager getting in the car with my parents right after church and feeling rather frustrated. I wanted to know more about God, was not, but really wasn't gaining any knowledge from going to church. I thought maybe I was just stupid. So I asked my parents what they gleaned from the sermon that morning. They didn't know what the pastor was talking about either. So after that day, I decided I must not be stupid, but I really still didn't know how to seek more of God. When I was a junior in high school, I was in a car accident. I was critically injured and spent five weeks in the hospital. I was told I may not walk or ride horses again, but really never took the doctors too seriously. I remember being in a lot of pain and even remember the pressure of them putting another chest tube in my lungs. And I had to learn how to cover the little hole on my tracheotomy so I could talk. Despite the pain, I was glad I was injured more than the other two people in the vehicle. I believe I would recuperate, so I knew they would be okay too. I even made my mom get me a hitball card to send to my friend from my hospital bed. I received hundreds of hitball cards from people I didn't even know. I had plants and flowers all over my room. I felt very special and cared for, more than I ever had in my own life. After I was out of intensive care, I was told the young man I was with in the car accident had died of brain injury. He had never gained consciousness, and he had donated his kidneys. I was devastated. Why did I live? Why did he die? He was planning to go to medical school. I spent many months trying to figure that out. After the ordeal was over, I realized how close I had been to death, and I could have died so easily. I figured God had some plan for me that I wasn't sure about. I did later decide to go into nursing school because of the appreciation I had for all the nurses and the doctors that had cared for me. I was very grateful to them and, of course, God for my recovery. I went on to nursing school in Fayette, Missouri. There I met my husband, Harvey, the last few months of school. We married a year later. I graduated with an associate's degree in nursing, but he had two years left to complete his degree in industrial art education. So we moved to Warnsburg from my hometown of Mexico, Missouri, so he could finish his degree. I worked at the local hospital and decided to go back to school to get my bachelor's degree in nursing while we were still in Warnsburg. I was ready to be a mom, so I planned it out just perfectly. I graduated with my degree in nursing in May and gave birth to my first child, Rachel, June 4th. So that was perfect time. <laughs> Fortunately, I made it through school despite complications of high blood pressure and I ended up with preclampsia. 
I had a C-section because my condition was continuing to get worse, and I wanted to have an epidural to be awake for the birth of my daughter, but the doctor determined that I was to have general anesthetic. So during my first glimpse of my daughter, I could hardly hold my head up to see her at the foot of my bed. My vision was blurred because I was on a drug called magnesium sulfate, which often has those side effects. I spent the first 24 hours vomiting from the anesthesia. It really wasn't a great way to welcome a newborn, but I was very grateful because she was healthy. I was nursing Rachel without any difficulty when I was told I had to stop because my blood pressure continued to be out of control. I could not nurse with the antihypertensives I had to take. My response was, well, give me something that I can continue nursing. But yet, I ended up stopping nursing and started pumping. Rachel would not take a bottle even when the other nurses tried to feed her. Well, my emotions ran high, but after a few days, I got to start nursing again. After it was discovered, I could take the medication I needed to and nurse. I got to go home after a week of being hospitalized once my blood pressure improved. I had to continue to take antihypertensives for the long term. It was decided my blood pressure, high blood pressure, was a result of the kidney damage I had when I was in the car accident earlier. My understanding of God's love for me grew exponentially. It amazed me that God would intentionally send his son to the earth just to die for my sins so I can be forgiven. That is amazing love. And I was sure I couldn't do that to my child. Well, life continued on. I worked full time and then part time as a nurse. My second daughter, Amber, joined our family after normal labor and delivery. I had what you call a VBAC, a vaginal delivery after a C-section. I was thrilled to be involved with my daughter's birth despite the original doctor's warning that I might kill myself. Vaginal deliveries after C-section were controversial at that point in time. So I went to the UMKC Medical Library to search the most recent studies and found statistically VBACs were essentially safer than a repeat C-section. So I had to find another doctor who said, sure, go for it. I still had issues with my blood pressure, but not at the, lamp, at the same level as with Rachel. I loved being a mother and would have loved to be a full-time stay-at-home mom. My husband, Marty, was very busy starting a new business in construction, so we needed my income and health insurance for the family. We were attending church regularly, and I was involved in numerous women's body studies throughout the years. I read everything I could about raising godly children and how to have a godly marriage. I listened to Christian radio whenever I could. I was soaking up how to live a godly life as a wife and a mother. I found motherhood easy. I readily understood the balance between love and discipline. I saw the map clearly and was able to follow it with very good results. My children were a blessing to me. I found being a godly wife much more difficult. Harvey and I seemed to be so different. 
we were dealing with very different expectations. This is where I had to learn my husband is not perfect, nor can I expect him to be. And surprise, nor am I, which equals the not perfect, or would you call it at times a sinful marriage? We were both self-centered. James 4, 1 to 3 is a wonderful example of what not to do. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. See the selfishness in that? Well, that was a good example. I had much to learn about forgiveness and how to allow God to meet my needs so I could give up my rights and serve my husband. I had even found myself thinking about what it would be like to be married to someone else. Fortunately, because of God's word, I realized that was sinful thinking. I knew God was calling me to put that thinking aside and stay married, for better or worse, to my husband. That, after all, is what I promised, and I prayed for the better. I became pregnant for the third time and was so excited to have another baby. I had an appointment for routine program and drove to the office with a very strong sense of God's presence that morning. While I was at the office, I discovered my 16-week pre-born baby had died. I had no indication that anything was wrong. I drove home uh, by myself, distraught over the bad news. I pleaded with God that the ultrasound was wrong, or God could kill my baby. I had another ultrasound appointment the next day. The bad news was confirmed. I I did not elect to have a DNC because I wanted to see and hold my baby. I went to the hospital and was induced, and I delivered my dead little boy. I got to hold my first little son that I would not get to know. That was a hard struggle, yet eventually I was able to let go. After many conversations with God, I decided I was being selfish. He would never have to suffer in this life. And I knew I would get to know him in, some, in heaven someday. I was able to trust God. I became a pregnant a few months later and was thrilled to hear the news. A few months into the pregnancy, I began bleeding and thought, oh no, here we go again. I began pleading with God for this baby's health, but came to the conclusion that I would trust God's plan for me and this baby. Yes. I wanted a healthy baby to love and raise, but I put it into God's hands. Well, seven months later, I was blessed with a healthy baby boy we named Keith. I was so excited. Life continued on relatively smoothly. I continued working part-time as a nurse while Harvey continued working hard running his own construction business. I loved being a mom and worked hard to teach my children the way of the Lord. In many ways, I was learning right along with them. My purpose of my faith story, I want to, look, for purposes of my faith story, I want to share a little bit more about Rachel, my firstborn. 
She was an awesome child with a very tender heart. She was very obedient and certainly tried to please me, which she easily accomplished. Conversely, she also had her struggles. She was somewhat of a slow learning learner in school, but always did her best. Determination was certainly her strength. Unfortunately, as she grew up, doing her best turned into expecting herself to be perfect. Of course, that brought fears of not being perfect, along with the normal insecurities of growing up. It didn't help that in elementary school and later high school, there were a few girls who made fun of her, and of course, she took that to heart. I pointed Rachel to the Bible, and she copied numerous scripture about fear, worry, trust, which she wrote down and memorized. Matter of fact, those papers of scripture were worn soft from handling them so much. She internalized God's love for her and learned to overcome her fears and insecurities. Rachel and I always had a very close relationship, and she shared her life with me. I could hear conversations in the room with her and totally understand her feelings. For Rachel's 16th birthday, I gave her a keychain that had an engraved angel holding a sword on it. The keychain referred to Psalm 34-7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. I was certainly focused on Rachel's safety as she started driving, asking the Lord to protect her. Rachel's junior year of high school and college prep English, she had to write a composition. She wrote a paper titled, My Best Friend. The first sentence says, My mother has been my best friend all of my life. I know my mother will be available to listen to when, even when no one else is. The paper goes on to say what every mother would love to hear from their daughter. I wanted to share this with you to help you understand how close Rachel and I were, even through high school. There's nothing I want to do for her. Rachel went on to college at Northwest Missouri State University in Maryville. There she continued to grow in her love for and dependence on God, her Father, through Jesus, her Savior. I have accomplished my main goal as a mother, at least with my firstborn at that point in time to lead my children to the Lord. Three and a half years later, Rachel graduated from Northwest Missouri State University, magna cum laude, and then come. I just started volunteering for Rachel House, which is a pregnancy resource center. I love sharing the gospel to the young women who came in for pregnancy tests. A nurse who worked there told me about a Bible study she was was in called Bible Study Fellowship. She showed me the questions she answered, and I thought, great, I would love to learn and grow more in the Lord. It was April, and the study was almost finished for the year, and would start again in September. I signed up. In the meantime, I was helping to prepare for wedding. Rachel was to marry her college sweetheart, David, on May 4th. It was a beautiful, God-honoring wedding ceremony. It was, I was strongly impressed to give a tribute to her during the ceremony. I had thought, what a shame to honor people at their funeral. Her wedding would be a perfect time to honor her. I told her publicly what she meant to me and how proud I was of her to be living the life of the Lord. The ceremony glorified the Lord, and I was emotionally and 
What happened exactly one month later devastated me. Rachel was on her way home from work on eastbound I-70. She was two miles away from her exit to Holman Blue Springs. A car entering I-70 lost control and hit the side of her car. The impact knocked her car on top of the concrete barrier that separates east and westbound I-70. The driver's seat of her car collided into the pole of the sign that tells you the upcoming exit. Rachel's husband called me to tell me Rachel was not home to celebrate their one-month anniversary when he expected her to be home. He eventually left, going to look for her. I had the television on folding clothes with Amber when it was announced there was a fatality accident. I saw her car and distinct tennis shoes she wore on the pavement. We immediately started screaming. It was Rachel. No prayers to save her. She was already gone. My life fell apart. This was the beginning of the hardest trial of my life. It was literally hell on earth. My heart was instantly broken and I wanted to die. So many questions and so many what ifs. One of my first direct questions to God was, where are you? I could not feel his presence. But yet, in my thinking, I knew the Bible said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. My feelings did not match my knowledge. I actually felt betrayed by God. He had given me this wonderful baby who, who turned into a beautiful God, loving woman to love, and I loved her well. And he took her away. How unfair. He tricked me. I questioned God's love for me. How can he love me and break my heart like this? This was not loving. Not only that, but I believed in God's sovereignty. Yet he allowed this perfectly timed car accident. One second faster or slower, and her car wouldn't have been hit. In his power, how could he allow this? There wasn't even anyone else to get mad at me or to get mad at Archibald. A woman with her child on her way to a Bible study hit my daughter's car. No direct driver. Yet she killed my daughter, and she and her child were uninjured. How unfair. I remember sitting on the front porch listening to the sounds of spring and thinking, how could the world go on? My life had stopped. Every morning I woke to the realization that I would have to live my life without my daughter. My nightmare did not go away. Not only did I lose Rachel, but I gradually lost my son-in-law and the future children Rachel was so excited to have. One of the first verses of the Bible that came to my mind was, Jesus wept. After Lazarus' death, and Jesus talked to Martha and Mary, he responded to their grief by weeping. Death and mourning deeply moved Jesus, and the Bible said he was troubled, even though he knew he was going to immediately bring Lazarus to life. I knew Jesus could relate to my mourning. Yet, I felt so isolated I personally knew no one who had lived through the death of their child. Except for my husband, Harvey, we both leaned on each other. I came to the realization that I would probably have to live at least 40 years without my daughter. I could not bear 40 years of grief. So I would have to learn how to live one day at a time without her. 
40 years of the Israelites wandering in the desert took on a new meaning for me. I managed to get through that first summer. I started reading all kinds of books about grief, death, and heaven. My life was consumed with trying to figure life and death out. I had been down that road several times before, but Rachel's death had pulled the rug out from under my feet. Fall came and I started BSF for the first time. It was the study of John. Each and every week, God personally spoke to me through his word about the exact questions my heart was seeking answers to. The most poignant lesson that year was John 6, 60-69. Early in the chapter, Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 men, and they followed him because of what Jesus could do for them. He filled their stomachs. Jesus then taught them he was the bread of life. He came from heaven, and they should accept Jesus as their source of life. Jesus told them they must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. Verse 60 starts. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has named him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That began, became Jesus' question to me. Lois, I know Rachel's death has been a hard teaching, but if you leave me, who will you turn to? My answer was there is no one but you, even when life brings really hard teaching. I could empathize with people who were so badly beat up with life that they could reject God, but I could not. That was my final answer. I praise God for the strength and wisdom he gave me through his word. Jesus' promise was fulfilled in my life when he said in John 10, 27, 28, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And I praise God for that promise. The night before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples in John 16, 33b, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There you have it. In this world, you and I will have trouble, but Jesus is our only true hope. Life will not be perfect this side of heaven. But heaven is coming. As time went on, I discovered my husband and I were dealing with Rachel's death very differently. After all, we think and feel different about a lot of things. He began pressuring me to move on, whatever that meant. I couldn't. I had to work through grief in my own way. That brought a greater sense of isolation and fear. 
read statistics that divorce was extremely high after the death of a child. I prayed that would not happen. Fortunately, Carter and I both took our promise for better or for worse until death do you part, seriously. It was a promise we made to each other, and we were certainly facing the worst. God held me close to him. I relied on God for strength, unconditional love, and persistence. I'm sure many of you have read the poem, Footprints in the Sand. It goes like this. One night I dreamed a dream that I was walking along the beach with my Lord. Across the sky flashed things from my life. For each scent seen, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonging to me and one to the Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that as many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you walked with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you, never, ever drink your trials and testing. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Even though life was hard and I lost so much, my focus gradually changed to see life more and more from God's perspective. John 11, 25b was engraved on Rachel's headstone. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 is also there. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Faith. Now there is a store for me the crown of righteousness. I pray to God constantly that I know Rachel is in heaven. There is no doubt for being six days short of her 22nd birthday and being buried on her 22nd birthday, she was definitely a follower of Jesus Christ. She even told her husband, her new husband, she was ready to go to heaven. She was so full of life and love. My passion for sharing Jesus has grown so much. I see life so much more clearly. We are on this earth for such a short time. Nothing compares to eternity. I so want people to be ready to stand before God and be declared righteous because of our faith in Jesus alone. Nothing else really matters. Are you ready? Take your eyes off this world and put them on heaven. Matthew 16, 19-20a says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasures for you. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven. A, a scripture I struggled with early on was Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I knew it was true, yet I could not deal with that truth. I did not, it did not seem good for my daughter to be killed. I stood aside, and it took me three or four years to be able to finally agree, yes, I do believe that truth. 
It is for God's purposes, not mine. I know it gives God the glory when I can agree with him, even in the pain. God is God, and I am not. As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Eighteen years later, I can say my life is good, certainly not perfect. My faith and marriage have grown stronger. My daughter and son, both committed Christians, have married godly people. I have seven wonderful grandchildren, ages 11 to 2. The oldest four have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I continue to pray for the youngest three, and of course for their future spouses and their children. Life is not easy, but 1 Peter 1, 67 says it well. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I do praise God for what he's taught me. Death is the effect of sin, yet Jesus has defeated death. Submit to God, for he is God and we are not. He does know what is best in our lives. Trust him. Everything in this life is temporary. Live life with heaven in mind. When life is hard, dig into God's word. God speaks directly to you through his word. God is a very personal God. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, Paul gets a wonderful example of how to deal with trials. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In my weakness of missing Rachel, or any trial that comes our way, I am strong. That is a constant reminder of my need for God to strengthen and abide with me. I need him. That brings joy to my heart. I praise God I will always need him. I pray he is your strength too. In every struggle or trial you have had, are currently in, or will be in, let God be your strength. God is sovereign and he loves us no matter our circumstances. Emotions and feelings can lead you astray. In all directions of life, turn to the words, turn to the truth of God's word and he will get you on the right path. Constantly think what God would have you do in every circumstances of life and do it. Remember, in our weaknesses, he is our strength. In your pain, suffering, or doubts, go to the author of life. He loves you. Christ's death on the cross proves it.